This is Melbourne. Welcome to Shire Network News, the official podcast of the Anglospheric group blog, silentrunning.tv. I'm your host, Tom Payne. This week's feature interview is with the infamous Aussie blogger Tex, who writes Whacking Day, and also does a mean impersonation of lefty audio blogger Niall Cook. All those bloody liberal supporters who drink champagne and eat caviar while they're watching the workers suffer, and the fascist Howard regime who are doing this and that against the workers will surely experience some sort of great backlash from the proletariat. Tex will be along shortly, and as well we'll hear from Andrew Ian Dodge, our man in London, boasting about getting hit on by 19-year-old girl, the bastard, and Lawrence Simon joins us from Houston with the Full of Cramp Report. Right now though, Blog News. <laughs> Two hundred years ago this week, Admiral Lord Nelson beat the Franco-Spanish fleet off Cadiz at the Battle of Trafalgar, cementing British naval supremacy which would last at least another hundred years. Before the battle, in which he was killed, he prayed, May the great God whom I worship grant to my country and for the benefit of Europe in general a great and glorious victory, and may no misconduct in any one tarnish it, and may humanity after victory be the predominant feature of the British fleet. For myself individually... I commit my life to him who made me, and may his blessing light upon my endeavours for serving my country faithfully. To him I resign myself, and the just cause which is entrusted to me to defend. Now, you try and imagine what would happen to any officer in today's Western military who tried to pull a stunt like that in Iraq or Afghanistan. Britons never will be slaves, eh? Tell me, how's Piglet doing these days? So, how about those dumb conservatives currently spazzing out over the Harriet Myers Supreme Court nomination? Hmm, let's see. The President is trying to fight a war on terror and needs all the support he can get in this critical period. I know. Let's hand him a massive defeat on a significant domestic issue and make him look powerless and stupid. That'll help us win the war. Yeah! Morons. I have to say, having weighed all the issues and examined the positions of the various commentators, I'm more convinced than ever before that I really don't care. The Constitution of the United States is only four pages long. You don't need a doctorate in advanced hyper-legal affairs to be able to grasp it, surely. All the Supreme Court ever does is decide if a particular law is constitutional or not. How much brain power does that take? Now, if you wanted someone used to interpreting clumsy, contradictory, and above all, lengthy sets of rules, Bush should obviously appoint someone with experience playing board war games like Advanced Squad Leader. You try working out line-of-sight issues while trying to rush across the street using your uh, Soviet troops on landmines, and there's uh, boar-sighted anti-tank guns on the roof, and there's hidden Stog 3s. You could be there for ages. I mean, you know, the Supreme Court um, judges would be begging for mercy after a, a... Ten minutes with a rules lawyer from advanced squad leader. But really, you know, the US Constitution, it's a four-page document. 
It was written by Thomas Jefferson in his lunch hour while he was waiting in Philadelphia for General Cornwallis to drop by and hang him. How hard can it be, really? You could shave a monkey and stuff him in a suit and he'd be an effective Supreme Court justice. In the case of Souter, there's some speculation that's exactly what happened. And by the way, you can thank Bush 1 for that particular emanation of the penumbra. For anyone who wants to risk catching conservative obsessive compulsive disorder, you can dip into National Review Online's The Corner, pro-life blogs and info theory. But be warned, that way lies madness. New Zealand finally has a government, sort of. Helen Clark, the poor man's Stalin with an X chromosome, will continue to rule with a hand of, if not iron, then a non-ferrous metal of some description. She'll be aided and abetted in this effort by the Greens, who in return get nothing. And the populist New Zealand First Party, who get to have their leader Winston Peters be Foreign Minister. That, however, does not mean he supports the government. Oh no, New Zealand First want to sit on the opposition benches. And Winston is at pains to state he is not a member of the cabinet and that he opposes crucial planks of the government's foreign policy, like a free trade agreement with China. How can a country operate with a foreign minister who's not in the government and doesn't represent its policy, you ask? I suspect the answer is not very well. Douglas Davis in The Spectator marks the occasion with one of the most gloomy, albeit, I have to say, accurate portraits of my homeland that I've seen lately. Here's what he writes. New Zealand is everything Australia is not. While Australia exhibits the characteristics of a thrusting alpha male, New Zealand remains stuck in sullen adolescence. But visiting Auckland the other week for the first time in 30 years induced an involuntary tightening of the sphincter. The city is even more dour and dull than I remember. Kiwis excel at rugby, but at most other endeavours they barely touch mediocrity. Back in the 70s, a social commentator described his fellow citizens as a passionless people. No longer... Kiwis have acquired passionate hatreds for Americans, for Israelis, and for anyone who is not aware of nuclear issues, globalisation, the environment, ecology, animal rights. But all that has not made its problems go away. Alcoholism and drug abuse continue to take a crippling toll. Suicide is now regarded as a significant cause of death. The incidence of violence against children is among the highest in the developed world. Not a very happy paradise. OK, first of all, ouch! And second, if this is what the Shire is like after six years of Saruman and address, what will another three years of Labour rule do to the place? Anyone with any get-up-and-go is going to do precisely that. Hmm, I should probably make up my guest bedroom here in Melbourne, shouldn't I? Are blogs politically important? Democratic candidates for an Ohio Senate seat seem to think so. Iraq War veteran Paul Hackett, who made such a big impression in the race for the Ohio 2nd Congressional District this year, almost winning against the odds, had been closing in on the Democratic nomination for the Senate seat held by Republican Mike DeWine, which is up for grabs in 2006. He attributed a lot of the buzz surrounding his campaign to blogs, with the advertising liberally network providing the majority of Hackett's fundraising. He says blogs brought in more than half a million dollars of the $856,000 he raised in his house race, and that's a pretty serious impact from blogs right there. However, the blogosphere giveth, but it can also taketh away, with Democratic Representative Sherrod Brown forcing a primary, and several leading Democratic bloggers now suggesting Hackett step aside for a guy who is seen as more likely to beat the Republican. The latest numbers show Republican Mike DeWine is favoured for re-election against the field, 5-4, to four, with a 55.6% chance, downgraded from 57.1%, of 
course, the real odds, it depends on which Democrat actually gets to run against him. News that the Democrats are trying to nudge him out of the way in favour of a more established party loyalist may be bad for Paul Hackett, but you have to admit it's interesting to see blogs now starting to be mentioned as serious factors in American politics. And if anyone is listening, I can tell you that uh, my blog support can be bought quite easily. All I ask is a lavishly funded researcher writer position in a think tank, you know, corner office, a hot young intern to do the actual researching, regular three-hour lunches with Jonah Goldberg and David Frum, an occasional slot on a chat show so I can claw George Stephanopoulos' eyes out, that sort of thing. On the other hand, as Hilaire Belloc once noted in a bit of doggerel which could just as easily be applied to bloggers, you cannot hope to bribe or twist, thank God, the British journalist. But seeing what the man will do unbribed is no occasion to. Could we organise a whip round in the blogosphere and send Marcos Zuniga, the man behind Daily Cost, to Iran to do a series of investigative reports on the government there? Because I think it might be enlightening for him to visit a country free of chimpy McHalliburton-Stein's brutal truth-throttling regime. It's a free country, a country that stands up to U.S. imperialism, a place that has the right to produce its own nuclear weapons with which to threaten the thermonuclear destruction of Israel. It's a country where bloggers get whipped. Wait a minute, uh, back up a second. Oh, yes, it seems Iranian blogger Ahmad Sayed Saraj, who's been in prison since the end of June in a jail in Tabriz, has received 30 lashes of the whip. Well, he must have done something really terrible, right? Let's see, what's the charge? Okay, he has apparently been charged with offending the authorities. Hmm, kind of makes you wonder how Daily Cost might fare if it were based in Tehran, doesn't it? By the way, interesting fact, Persian is the third largest language used by bloggers due to the more than 75,000 blogs generated in Iran. Maybe some people are prepared to stand up to oppression and intimidation, not suck up. Hey, Marcos? Hurricane Katrina-induced media insanity was ruthlessly lampooned on American TV this week when an episode of South Park targeted clueless reporters for simply making stuff up and reporting wild rumours, the wilder the better. Remember how babies were being raped in the Superdome and people were eating each other while helicopter gunships flew over the city, deliberately blowing away black people? Never happened, but the media seem oddly reluctant to revisit their disastrous performance in New Orleans, hoping we're just going to forget about it. Which is why it's heartening to see a cartoon show holding their feet to the fire. Here's how the fictional media replicate their real-life counterparts when the world's largest beaver dam breaks and floods the town of Beaverton, Colorado. Tom, I'm currently ten miles outside of Beaverton, unable to get inside the town proper. We do not have any reports of fatalities yet, but we believe that the death toll may be in the hundreds of millions. Beaverton has only a population of about 8,000, Tom, so this would be quite devastating. Any word on how the survivors in the town are doing, Mitch? We're not sure what exactly is going on inside the town of Beaverton, uh, Tom, but we're reporting that there's looting, raping, and yes, even acts of cannibalism. My God, you, you've actually seen people looting, raping, and eating each other. No, no, we haven't actually seen it, Tom. We're just reporting it. Finally, in blog news, in a move that scored very high on my personal irony meter, a Guardian reporter, Rory Carroll, was kidnapped in Baghdad this week. 
He'd just done an interview with supporters of Shiite cleric Moqtada al-Sada, and surprise, surprise, his kidnappers wanted to exchange him for some of al-Sada's followers in jail. Maybe making arrangements to interview supporters of a known killer might tip them off to where you'll be and when, Rory. Maybe being a journalist doesn't make you bulletproof. Anyway, the Guardian issued appeals for Carol's release on Iraqi local radio. Sahafiyon min jaridat al-Guardian al-Britaniya akhtafa fil Iraq. تصريح من جريدة الغاردين البريطانية يوم الأربعاء 19 أكتوبر عام 2500 أكدت جريدة الغاردين اليوم أن مراسلها في بغداد روري كارول وجنسيته إيرلندية اختفى Okay, here's the loose translation of that. Please let Rory Carroll go. His work against the American occupiers is as important as yours. We are the Guardian. We are on your side. I think that's essentially the message. Anyway, the kidnappers realized he was worth a lot more to the insurgency alive and writing crap about Iraq than dead, which means we still don't know if the Guardian will continue to use words like activist, insurgent and militant if they ever get one of their own people returned to them in several separate boxes on the instalment plan with a cute video on Al Jazeera demonstrating how the trick was achieved. Well, that's enough blog news for now. Time to cross to Houston where a mightily pissed off Lawrence Simon is standing by. Hi there, this is Lawrence Simon. It's time for the Full of Crap Report. There were a lot of candidates this week, from the people who didn't think the Houston Astros could make it in the World Series, uh, to George Bush for allowing Hamas to participate in the Palestinian elections, while, of course, he, he is completely adamant against Ba'athists and Taliban from running in Iraqi and Afghanistan democratic elections. With Bush, it's okay if you want to kill Jews. You know, go ahead, run. It's democracy. Asshole. Uh, and speaking of Afghanistan, why do Muslims keep saying that the terrorists are not representative of Islam and practice a twisted religion of it? But, you know, when the military burns a few uh, terrorist bodies, you know, we're defiling Islam. Ugh, fucking assholes. Riddle me that, Batman. But those are too easy. Let's focus on the big easy instead. Mayor of the former city of New Orleans, Ray Nagin, attacked the owner of the New Orleans Saints, Tom Benson, on Wednesday for working with the San Antonio officials to move the team permanently. Uh, let's see. We want our Saints. Well, fuck you, asshole. They're not your Saints. Uh, sorry, Ray, but when I last checked, you were mayor of New Orleans, not Green Bay, where the community actually owns the team, the team name, the team logo, so on and so forth. If you brush up on your basic contract law, Tom Benson is the owner, not you. You don't own Dick. You see, I live in Houston. I know all about a team owner taking his team away in the middle of the night. Bud Adams yanked the Oilers out of here almost a decade ago because he didn't believe the Astrodome was good enough to play in. This city spent millions on additional luxury boxes, upgrading the seats, uh, better facilities, and you know what, he just yanks them out because it just wasn't enough corporate welfare for him. So he took the name, he took the team, he took the logo, and he changed it all for their new home in Tennessee. Fine, he can do that. He's the owner. He owns it. When I last checked, this is Houston, not Green Bay. You know what, the new franchise that we got here? The Houston Texans. Sure, they suck, but when 
this little piece airs, they're going to be 0-6, and six, heading for a perfect 0-16 and 16 season. And you know what? We don't own them either. Bob McNair owns them. If they were the ones moving to San Antonio with secret talks and all that, if Rita had struck this town and destroyed Reliance Stadium, and they had to play in San Antonio in the Alamo Dome, well, guess what? Bye-bye. McNair, you can do whatever you want with them. You could move them to the moon. You're the owner. You know, when the Saints go marching out and move to San Antonio, I'm sure they're going to call themselves something else. And they're going to get rid of that stupid fleur-de-lis faggy logo. Because Santas de la San Antonio sounds really gay, and for those who habla espanol, it's kind of redundant, too. The Rangers, the Gamblers, the Coyotes, the Armadillos, that's the one. Armadillos, fucking vermin who can be run over easily, they pop up, and they keep on running. And you know what? Armadillos stink to high hell, too. But let's think this one through. Let's say the Saints, are, for whatever stupid, physically unsound, bankrupt the billionaire reason, stay. Following the business advice of Ray Nagin, the most corrupt mayor in the goddamn country. Well, the Superdome is a disaster area. The city is bankrupt. Who's going to rebuild the Superdome so they can play? Well, the federal government, of course, because the city can't afford it. The state can't figure out what the hell they're doing. And Well, the feds just soak Uncle Sam. And you know how well that's going to fly, spending four or $500 million on corporate welfare for a stadium, while a bunch of poor black folks in the Ninth Ward wait two or three years for money to rebuild their homes. Or if they were renters, congratulations, they're going to rebuild that area with condos that they can't afford. Talk about hating black people. Priorities, people. Priorities. There's still people floating around from hurricanes past. Who gives a shit where a football team plays? If you can't afford to get into the damn stadium, you're going to watch it on TV anyway. <sighs> Me, I think he's just worried that the city can't afford to lose the, the three dozen or so black millionaire athletes from the economy. They buy a hell of a lot of drugs, and that's what keeps the real economy of New Orleans going. Back to you, Tom Payne, and feel free to send the hate mail my way. Thanks, Lawrence, and for those of you getting ready to sue the show, just remember that my name is spelled T-E-D-R-A-L-L. Thank you. You're listening to Shire Network News, the official podcast of the Anglo-Spirit group blog, SilentRunning.tv. I'm your host, Tom Payne. Time now for this week's feature interview. It's Tex, who writes the excessively violent Canberra-based blog, Whacking Day. I asked Tex my by now standard opening question, what got him into blogging in the first place? I'd actually been sending uh, Tim Blair a series of emails about a large series of nut jobs who I'd found on the web that I thought he'd find interesting. I'd found his site about three or four months before I started and I thought, oh, this is very amusing. And eventually I realised that he probably had hundreds of people sending him this stuff, so why not comment on it myself? So... I tried to start up a, a page at uh, blogger.com, which um, I made exactly one post, which said, hello and welcome to Rum Blogger. And uh, then I thought, what the hell, and bought my own domain. So that's how it started. Now, you're kind of known for the extreme violence of your language in Waking Day. You, you drop the F-bomb a lot, basically, don't you? Why is that? I don't know. I find it enjoyable, I suppose. Well, people who can really write um, enjoy writing longer pieces, but... I don't. I, I tend to make sort of pithy one-paragraph comments that, uh, you know, the man in the street can really connect with man, you know. Um, 
I don't know, I, I've actually turned down the swearing a bit because when I go back and read some of my old archives, they're quite infantile sometimes. So Well, yes. I try to be a bit more grown up, but it is fun to read some of that old stuff, particularly when, you know, nutbags like Philip Adams and Hugh Mackay and Richard Neville are concerned. You get quite exercised by them. You can tell that you're not just making this up. You're really irritated by some of the people on the left with their ridiculous worldviews. Well, I'm... I'm sort of mixed between amused and angered. I'm more, I, I tend to get irritated when they're people who have, for some inexplicable reason, earned some measure of public respect, like um, the, the dreadful Hugh Mackay, who, for anyone listening to this outside of Australia, is a incomprehensibly well-respected... Um, I think okay. the, word, the word they tend to use is, is uh, social research. Social researcher, and, and some of his social research has included some fantastic bits of revelatory brilliance, such as uh, teenagers like hanging out in groups, and mobile telephones are very, very popular. And if teenagers start buying more mobile telephones, they'll start making telephone calls and this sort of thing. And how much are we paying him to come up with this stuff? Well, I'm not sure who's paying him anymore, but whoever it is, I'm sure that they're paying too much. And of course, you know, Philip Adams has been a favourite of mine, mostly because he's a, a sort of a completely airhead, dead shit communist who, for some reason, is again renowned as some sort of great intellectual commentator. One of your favourite targets, you've got several targets, but one of your favourites is Richard Neville, who is uh, just never ceases to amaze us. But if you come up with what he's going on, that you think, oh my God, what is this? Well, believe it or not, I actually had. I started off, my first encounter with Richard Neville, I had some respect for him, believe it or not. This sort of started off in the early 90s, and people might be surprised to hear this, but the first I ever heard of him was in a television movie that they made called The Trials of Oz, about an obscenity trial that Neville was involved in in London in the late 60s. For the benefit of, of the listeners who aren't familiar, Richard Neville was a pioneering uh, magazine editor in uh, Swinging London in the 1960s, and had a satirical magazine called Oz, and actually did a lot of very valuable work in, in challenging you know, the role of the Lord Chancellor and, and censorship and so forth and things like that. He was a, a symbol of the counterculture in London in the 60s. Unfortunately, he hasn't changed since the 1960s, has he? And, uh, no, and I actually had a great deal of respect for what he did back then, but he's sort of slipped into this almost demented sort of drug casualty vortex of paranoia and, and insanity that's... I mean, you really have to listen to him speak or read his website. I, I sort of noticed how nutty he got in the mid-90s when, when, believe it or not, he was doing film reviews on the midday show for Channel 9. And he'd, he'd come up with these classics like, um, you know, Alien 3 wasn't a successful movie because it was really a metaphor for AIDS and, you know, because Americans have such passionate hatred for homosexuals and AIDS. Uh, sufferers that they decided they weren't going to see this movie. That's funny. I thought they wouldn't see it because it stank on ice. Well, that, that's what I would have thought too. And, of course, the, the dreadful Dan Aykroyd comedy Coneheads was a failure because Americans are xenophobes and racists who don't like watching films about uh, outsiders living in America. I thought it was because he wasn't funny anymore. Well, he hasn't been funny since the Blues Brothers, basically. But, you know, th there's always some deeper explanation behind things that usually has to do with Wall Street and Zionist bankers and... Uh, you know, uh, Halliburton and, you know, the war cartels and this sort of thing. So. Why do you think the left has fallen off the edge like this into this uh, abyss of insanity? Well, because I think it's just because they keep losing and they're, and they're culturally impotent. And they, I don't think, it's simple to say, but I think it really boils down to the fact they can't handle the fact that 
the Eastern Bloc lost the Cold War. I mean, they've, they've just never been able to adjust to the fact that the American and uh, the, the capitalist way of life are ultimately victorious. And they've, they've, I don't think that they've sort of desperately been floundering around, uh, been trying to find anything to latch onto, which will give them some ray of hope that, you know, somehow the Western way of life will be obliterated, which is why now we're seeing the rather humorous spectacle of people like, you know, Jermaine Greer, you know, celebrating the use of the burqa by the Taliban and this sort of thing. And, you know, people, great sort of human rights intellectuals from the left, yet again celebrating communist tyrants, except instead of Mao and uh, Joseph Stalin, they're now doing it with Fidel Castro. Uh, Castro, Cuba is one of your favourite targets. You, you like to poke the left through the bars with a sharp stick. Do they ever bite back? Do you ever get any feedback from them at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, if I ever want to generate mail for myself, I just got to mention Che Guevara and post a picture of him lying dead on a slab after he was killed by the Bolivian, Bolivian army. And I'll get these outraged emails saying, how dare you fascist communist fucking bastard? What would you know? He travelled the world and helped the lepers before you were even born and, you know, help the poor to conquer the bloody rich or the whatever. Che Guevara helped the lepers? Yes, he, he apparently uh, rode a motorcycle around South America and helped the leper colony. I suppose, you know, maybe he figured that there'd be more um, rich lepers around to shoot later on. So. You, you got a live one uh, recently, a, a green candidate in Canberra, and he actually engaged you in quite a bit of a debate. Yeah, his name was uh, Tom Lyons, and he was a Greens candidate in the Victorian state election, I think, in 2002 or wherever the, that particular state election was. And he'd sort of answered a, a post I'd made on Usenet about uh, the Cubans, and he basically went on this bizarre three-week rant about how Cuba was really a victim of you know American propaganda, and they actually held free and fair elections, and... Um, their way of life was superior to capitalism because, you know... And, and how does he explain all those people trying to basically swim to Miami? Well, apparently they're all Cubans who are in the pay of the um, uh, mafia in Miami and they're sort of CIA Buddhist agents who are planting bombs around Havana or something. Buddhist agents planting bombs? Yes, well, the, um, I found that out when I, I mentioned to him after he claimed that, politi- uh, that Cuba doesn't have any political prisoners and I sort of mentioned... Uh, fellow named Dr. Biscay, who was um, currently imprisoned in a, a cell the size of a toilet block for um, teaching Cubans about non-violent resistance and democracy. And um, his response to this was saying, well, he was really a CIA plant and a violent Buddhist agent. And he knows this because a priest somewhere in Vietnam sent him an email to this effect. And this man actually stood for Victorian Parliament as a Greens candidate. Good Lord. Well, this is all vastly amusing and a, and a lot of fun apart from you know a bit of entertainment what do you get out of it what, what keeps you blogging I think it's just something to do really it just lets me rant about things which piss me off or ask people questions I've set up sort of fantastic contacts with people who send me the little snippets of info I've actually gotten some rather sort of fascinating contacts with people in various... Well, I won't mention who they belong to. Aha, uh-huh, you're in the pay of the CIA. Yeah, that's right. I'll tell Tom Lyons about you. And, uh, you know, I was able to travel to the US and, you know, not pay for a single night's accommodation, basically, because of uh, the contacts I've made, you know, since I've been a web presence, I suppose. Do people get surprised when they actually see you in the flesh? Because you come over on, on, on the web as this sort of crazed, violent, you know, maniac, but you're, you're a fairly gentle sort of soul. Well, yeah, I mean, 
Well, for one thing, I don't actually talk much in person. I just prefer to drink beer and watch television and talk about motorbikes and that sort of thing. So, you've actually you actually got into a little bit of trouble uh, at, at work because of your politics at one stage, didn't you? Yeah, um, I put a Israeli flag on the door of my office and. Just to put this in context, the ANU is a place where... This is the Australian National University. Australian National University, and you can walk around any sort of office building, especially those where there are any kind of academics, and you'll see posters saying, you know, stop the Nazi Howard regime, and, uh, you know, why is Bush, you know, murdering Arab babies, and um, stop the Zionist bankers from taking over the planet, and this sort of thing, and... All I did was actually post a, uh, just stick a, an Israeli flag on my door. It was about the size of an A4 sheet of paper. And uh, some, some drip anonymously um, complained that, this, that the uh, Israeli flag was an offensive image. And I was required to remove it. And I, my basic response was, well, fuck you. And I started telling people in the media and, you know, of course... Tim Blair at the Bulletin and the Australian Jewish News and uh, the Australian Council of Jury got involved and let the university know that this wasn't acceptable. And they quickly sort of politely backed down and said, oh, well, you can put the flag back up if you really want to. Lessons from this are what? Um, I don't know. <laughs> the obvious. I mean, yeah, there's actually an American sociologist called C. Wright Mills who wrote something to the effect of uh, universities uh, which are institutions pretending to be um, pools of knowledge and freedom and intellectual vigour are in fact no such thing and never have been. And, you know, this is a perfect example. Now I'm reliably informed by my contacts in the blogosphere that you do one of the most spot on impersonations of Niall Cook's um, audio blogging out there. Oh, um, give, us a, give, give, give us an example. Well, it's, it's not, well, he sort of delivers it in this sort of monotonal blurb that he's obviously reading from a piece of paper and will do it sort of constantly until he's read the end, till, until the end of it. And you know, usually start talking about, you know, all those bloody liberal supporters who drink champagne and eat caviar while they're watching the workers suffer and the fascist Howard regime who are doing this and that against the workers will surely experience some sort of great backlash from the proletariat and this sort of thing. You know. That was fun. You want, to, you want to do that regularly on, on Shire Network News? No, thank you. What does blogging hold for you? Are you going to continue with, uh, with Whacking Day or change your approach or you know, give it away one day? Uh, I'll continue with it, mostly because you know, it's, not, um, it's not an everyday thing for me. It doesn't take up a lot of time. Yeah, you, you, don't, you don't update very often. You know, every, what is it, once a week, every two weeks? I mean, how often do you update? Um, well, sometimes it's every day and I'll do seven posts you know, one day and seven posts the next day. But uh, once I went nearly two months without posting anything just because I didn't feel like it. Um, and I'll sort of post randomly about, you know, motorcycles or some movie that I've seen or some stupid cartoon which I enjoyed. And uh, I, I decided long ago I wasn't going to be a, a daily, uh, a latest news sort of thing. You're not in it for the hits. No. Well, hit more, more traffic would be nice. But, I mean, if people want sort of latest news, they can go read Tim Blair or Instapundit and they're always commenting on whatever's in the news at that particular moment. And I never do that because, I mean, what's the point? 
and also I, I never actually update my site until about 1 o'clock in the morning anyway, so it's, by the time you've actually read what I have to say, it's old news. And Tex has a final plea to listeners. Yes, if anyone has nude pictures of Catherine Hagel, please send them to me. That's our Tex. His blog can be found at whackingday.com. Let's check in with our man in London to see if he's still boasting about attracting teenage totty, the bastard. Good afternoon from London. This is Andrew Ian Dodge of andreandodge.com. With the London Report, this week's been relatively exciting in London. Well, at least for political hacks, that is. We've had a couple very interesting developments. First of all, Stephen Byers got caught lying to Parliament, or as he put it, misleading. And secondly, we had the second round of the Tory leadership contest. Now, interestingly enough, it was down to three on Tuesday, and they settled on two on Thursday. Now, the three that were left were Liam Fox, David Davis, and David Cameron. I predicted that the two Davids would go forward, and surely enough, on Thursday, that's exactly what happened. Some of the journalists are rather complaining at this point, because the Davids are not actually going for each other's throat. The wet boil has been lanced with the departure of Kenneth Clark and, of course, also Malcolm Rifkin. And what's left is a battle for the heart and soul of the Conservative Party, but of different types of right of center conservatism. One that's a bit more libertarian in nature, which you could say is represented by Cameron, and one which is a bit more traditional in nature, which would be represented by Davis. Now, the press tried to stir things up by putting it out that Cameron did drugs and had a good time at university, not that anybody didn't know that, that Fox may or may not be entirely straight, and that David Davis might have actually roughed up one of his researchers who annoyed him. They were really clutching at straws, and all three of the leading contenders didn't rise to the challenge and got mad at the press for bringing up these silly stories. Now we have six weeks for the two Davids to go to the country and figure out which one of them is going to be selected by the 300,000 party members. Everybody's betting on Cameron, but 9 to 1 odds on David Davis. And I would happen to say that I don't think Davis is out of it just yet. Many of my friends in the Conservative Party and those to the right of centre are rather pleased by these two because, roughly speaking, they may have a priority. They may prefer one to the other, but neither one is that bad. So ultimately... It's a battle between two decent men, probably both of whom are perfectly capable of leading the Conservative Party, and it's just down to the individual members. Despite the fact that they were trying to do a stitch-up and having David Davis pull out, he's not going to do it, and it will be an interesting six weeks. Now, on another similar note, I went to the launch last night at Bloomberg's headquarters of Open Europe, which is a new non-partisan think tank, um which aims to open Europe up, especially when it comes to trade, and try to free it from its social consensus, which is dragging Europe down and crushing its economy, especially this country, which may not even see 1% growth next year. This organization is a combination of many things, and it's a think tank which aims to bring up the issue of why certain European aspects are so bad for Britain, whether it be closed borders, high taxation, over-regulation. But last night, concentrated on free trade, it was an absolutely fascinating presentation. And they gave us all a very, very, well, replete um, collection of information, and it was well presented. 
It's a very, very professional outfit. Of course, we all know that their ideas will be as popular in Brussels as a Satanist at a revival meeting. However, they are going to attempt it. And when pressed on what would happen if Europe tells them, as we expect them to tell them, to get knotted, and while being diplomatic, it was very much implied that Britain should re-examine its relationship with the European Union if changes are not made in Europe fairly soon. The website, should you be interested, is www.openeurope.uk.org. On a more professional and personal note, EP is finally done. I've been getting daily reports at this point from John, who is thoroughly sick of the entire endeavor of recording um, and uh, mixing the album. And we should be sending it off to CD Baby sometime soon, hopefully in the next couple of days, which is wonderful news. And I'm, of course, getting used to the being hit on by 19-year-olds again. I had it happen last night, and it was particularly funny, although it may have been even younger, because I was standing next to a, a, a fellow blogger, um, an anonymous blogger, and these two girls walked up and said, I heard you're lead singer of a rock band. Are you a rock star? And he, I could hear audibly his, him snicker behind me. It was particularly funny incident. That's about all from London for this week. Uh, I do hope you're safe and sound wherever you are, and please read andreandodge.com, libertycadre.net, and disgracefulmusic.com. Goodbye from London. Thanks, Andrew. I'll uh, take those uh, girls off when you finish with them. Well, that's it for another week here on Shire Network News, the official podcast of the Anglospheric group blog, silentrunning.tv. If you go to Silent Running and check the entry containing this podcast, you'll find links to all the sites mentioned in this week's show. Until next week, may your God go with you.